नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारमुख पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा माय गेस्ट टुडे इज डॉक्टर पल्लवी गुहा एंड वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट हर बुक हियर हैशटैग मी टू इन इंडिया पल्लवी थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक यू सो मच फॉर हैविंग मी ऑन योर शो कुशल स्पेशली ऑन इंटरनेशनल वुमेंस डे वेरी एक्साइटेड टू बी हियर or uh, yeah i it couldn't have been a more perfect day to uh, do this podcast so palavi before we talk about the book uh, i'll request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself sure uh, my name is palavi guha and um, good evening to everyone in india i am in the east coast so it's nice and bright sunny morning it's 9 am here <laughs> so if you have viewers from other parts of the world then good morning to you So I am uh, currently a journalism professor. I teach uh, journalism and new media at Towson University, but I'm also a former journalist and I've been in the profession like journalist, journalism professor, journalism educator, researcher. I've been doing this for the past almost 17 years now. And um, I got my PhD from the University of Maryland. I focused on uh, sexual anti rape and anti-sexual harassment, violence and activism on social media and news media platform. And today we are going to be talking about my book, which is an offset of my PhD that I finished uh, about four years ago. So it was an offset. So I'm really excited to talk about it all the more because I have seen the evolution, how it has changed. of uh, when i started working on it and now like after like several years so i have really lived the change while i was working on this book as well um yeah so, so that's I just, that's i just i just had so i just had this question so pallavi a because obviously this book was an extension of your phd or or your star education as such right. but uh, so i know this question is very cliched kind of a thing because if, and i asked this to everyone who writes a book but i genuinely am interested because i want to understand the mind of the author or why they pick a particular topic and why you know why a not b so why did you decide a to do the phd itself in this subject and then how did it go about getting converted into the book sure so i'll start with why i decided to do a phd uh, when i moved here um, i you know i was a uh, i was i've been a journalist for a long time not just in india but also in the uk so i was working in several newsrooms and uh, then i moved here uh, with my husband and uh, to the us and then i was working as a freelance journalist uh, then we had our daughter um, and you know between all of these i kind of started looking at how i could expand my career not just in journalism but also in journalism scholarship journalism academia journalism education which was something very new to me because i worked as a journalist but i was trained as a journalist in the newsrooms i never had any journalism degree when i was i was you know when i started working my academic background is in policy international relations so and and the fact that here there is so much focus on journalism scholarship and journalism research and education it was like you know mind boggling for me so my uh, parents they really encouraged me a lot especially my dad he told me that you know if you want to pursue this then you should you should you should go for it and um, my husband was also has been also very supportive so there i kind of um, i started looking at programs and that was the initiation and once in the program i also taught um, as guest lecturers a couple of classes 
and it was very different i had never imagined as an undergrad back in india i had never imagined that i would have a career in academia but you know you think something and then you know something else happens uh so yeah so that was my um initiation into academia and it just you know i started writing um scholarly articles and works which is very different from journalistic writing so i had to relearn myself and relearn the writing as well how i could express uh everything uh, just scholarship um without any bias and objectively reading scholarly articles and also understanding uh, journalism how as a profession it was changing because then it was changing when i was working as a journalist there was no twitter facebook was new so i was also looking at the evolution and you know chatting with some of my former colleagues how that was impacting in newsroom so everything came together and uh, yeah so i spent several years and uh, finally got the phd which was lot of lot of hard work and uh, sacrifices as well um talking about the topic why i became interested um so engaging in this kind of research writing and researching about sexual violence and how the media narrative uh, is formed it's kind of been an extension of my catharsis and it started even before i um i i kind of uh, started collecting interviews and started writing about my th- uh in the uh, data f- uh, for the thesis so it started way back in 2014 2015 so that was the first time when you know i was i started looking at these topics and um i became interested like what is it that social media is influencing when we are, t- are talking about anti sexual violence narratives anti sexual um violence activism on social media platforms if there has been any change on news media platforms and uh, then what really intrigued me that um after 2012 so 2012 is considered a watershed movement in anti rape and anti sexual uh, violence movement right in feminist activism so it kind of triggered me and intrigued me that what makes hashtag #nirbhaya build a public agenda a public narrative political policies and what neglects the others which i also write about such as um, you know jisha and so many others who are not talked about uh, there um is no movement for them there are no candlelight marches so i really wanted to understand this gap that is created like what makes something so viral and becomes like part of public memory public agenda and what just you know neglects the others so that was how i started working on my thesis and on my um on on my doctoral study but um once that was i had finished writing Hashtag Me Too happened in 2017. So um, I really then wanted to understand from the lens of hashtag Me Too if anything I had missed previously, or if anything was different as far as um, anti-sexual violence uh, activism is considered. Because 2012 was uh, what five years ago. 2017 when hashtag me too happened so 5 years uh, it's like light years in terms of social media platforms access uh, it has improved social media platforms they have evolved more people are online 
everywhere, not just in India. More people have access to these platforms. They have access to smartphones and, and more platforms are available. So I just wanted to see that if hashtag Me Too made any kind of changes, did it help in closing the gap? Because now more people are there. Are we seeing um, more public narrative, public agenda on uh, the others who were left behind previously? So that was how I started working towards the book. But once I started working, then hashtag Me Too India happened. So I had to change gears again to, to do the interviews. So, ju so just to understand, so from a writing perspective, so uh, I'll give you my experience when I used to read a lot of philosophy material. So I'll give you an example. Let's say David Chalmers, right? David Chalmers mm -hmm. would write a book. So one book would be written for his fellow academics and one book is written for, you know, the, the, the normal public. And and uh, and I would read both just being a student of philosophy. So you just tend to read both uh, to understand what is the difference. So uh, from your own perspective as a writer, as you, you, you say, you go from a journalism career back into academia to do a PhD and then back into writing books. Now, how does one change or flip around in the writing cycle as such? So how does one manage that? So what, what would be the difference, let's say, if you're writing a PhD paper or you're writing a book? Right, right. So one of the things I would say, which my uh, advisor also, she said after reading the book, that it does not feel or read like an academic, uh, you know, thesis or, or a doctoral thesis at all after, you know, after adding so much material. Um, so um, it's it's a cycle in the sense I, uh, I included a lot of my personal experiences when I was writing the book, which I had not included. And I was more open, not just as an academic, but also as an author. Like I went through a lot of ethical dilemmas, which I included in the book, whether when I was um, interviewing uh, these, um, you know, uh, the feminist activists or the journalists, was I making them relive their trauma of, of, uh, um, of, you know, reporting, covering? So, or, you know, it's time, it's an investment for them to speak with me, right? So all of these various ethical dilemmas I was going through, I have been very clear about these in the book. And that I think that helped me to, to connect with, um, with my audience, with the readers. I have also included, I've been very open about it, like why I did not include child sexual abuse or child, you know, sexual uh, rape, because I'm a mother of an 11 year old daughter. I could not bear myself to go through uh, the, the, the coverage. I just could not. And I've been open about it. I have been open about what when I faced um, sexual harassment on the streets, like, you know, how I reacted, what would have been any different if there were social media uh, platforms? There weren't any social media platforms. So I have had these conversations, uh, not just in my mind, but I have written about them. So I think that's the basic difference. Um, I've tried to be more open as an individual, as a person, not just someone who's writing, you know, who's reading all these academic journals, papers, and, uh, you know, news articles, but also someone who is sharing the writing process. So I, that's the primary difference, I would say. So now, now let's go into this this area of the book because I think it's very important to understand uh, for anybody who might uh, go forward and read your book is what are the research methods and the tools that you use? Because once you start the book, you do talk about uh, using uh, Lyons um, rationalization 
of creating alliances uh, within the global system. Now, now, why did you use that tool or, or what is that tool and what was so unique about that tool and methodology? Sure. So like um, I mentioned in the book, um, primarily I've used uh, feminist media methodologies, like, you know, um, I have mixed methods. So not just I have relied on uh, the interviews, but I've also uh, I've, I've also uh, done like network analysis, like Facebook pages, the handles, and then um, narratives, coverage, newspaper articles, and so on. And I have given, like, I have explained uh, the reason behind why I chose certain, uh, like, you know, why I chose the sexual violence and rapes that I chose to study. So let me start with the uh, interviews. Prime heavily, I focused on interviews. Uh, so for three years, from 2016 until 2019, I... Um, I managed to do like 75 interviews of uh, journalists as well as uh, as uh, well as anti-sexual feminist activists. And that helped me to understand their perspective. How do they use social media platforms when they are, you know, uh, when they are doing activism related to anti-sexual violence activism? How, uh, how do they use social media platforms when journalists are reporting on it? And um, I so before I constructed the questions, I made sure I read all the uh, most of the articles, the newspaper articles. Right. And um, you, you've already read the book. So, you know, the um, the rapes I chose were from 2005 until uh, 2018. Right. And it's it's a big it's a, it's a range. It's a big range. And I wanted to choose it because I wanted to understand what has changed between uh, 2012, before 2012 and now. Social media before and now. So that's why um, I just you know, chose, uh, cho chose those uh, rapes and sexual violence because I wanted to understand the activism behind it. Talking about the other research tools, uh, you, you talked about the global systems, the global alliances. So I wanted to study these handles on Facebook, specifically on Facebook, because Facebook has a wider reach as compared to Twitter. Um, at least when I was uh, studying it. So it's, it's, it has a more like wider reach, and especially uh, rural and semi-rural activists. They told me they're mostly on Facebook. Even if they use it sparsely, they are on Facebook. Like Twitter doesn't work for them for some reason. And um, you can tell me more about it, uh, how Twitter works and, you know, how, what you have seen from your perspective. So I've seen that the movements, some of the transnational movements, they do have the ability to travel. So I wanted to study when they are traveling from one space to another, for instance, a slut walk as a movement it traveled it in it uh, you know it initiated in canada but it traveled to all the spaces right so i wanted to understand yes they are able to travel but how far are they reaching in the global south right so i have to study um who is uh, resharing their content who are the nodes that they are most interacting with right and i and i found that uh, they are able to travel, but the sustainability, whether they are able to sustain and how far they are able to reach is based on local access related issues, economic issues and social factors. Um, so, yeah, so that was that's that's one of the reasons why I decided to to choose uh, the network analysis as well, because I was trying to understand all the spaces, news, social media, 
as uh, well as through my interactions, my interviews with people who are doing the work, who are there on the ground. Yes. Yeah, so something that really stood out for me in your book was, and, and I want to read this quote from your first chapter, where you say, there were many other challenges along the way. I decided not to include politically affiliated feminist activists in the interview process because, as a former journalist, I found that in India, they tend to be heavily influenced by the political ideology of their parties and their actions depend on whether their party is in power. Their actions would be motivated by the party line and not by the true calling of activism. So can you uh, shine a little bit of light on why, why you chose this particular light? Sure, definitely. And uh, I have also, you know, cited myself. I wrote an article, this is like, um, I, I have covered elections in India when I used to stay there. And uh, this comes from one of my experiences. And I have, like I said, I, I cited myself. So during one of the elections, one of the parties, uh, they only gave like two or two, I, if I remember correctly, two seats uh, to, to women in out of uh, 40 or 45 and i forgot I, at this point it's cited there out of uh, 40 or 45 seats and this is one of the parties which uh, talks a lot about women's empowerment uh, 30 percent reservation and so on so when i was uh, doing this um, i looked at the list and i was doing this uh, story i called up the uh, women's wing all the parties they have a women's wing and um, i spoke to the person who's heading the women's wing i asked her so what is it like your party does support 30% reservation or you know it support supports empowerment so why is it that you have like you know two seats only and um, i understand I understand the complications and uh, that, you know, possibly they have to defend the party. So she went on to tell me that, um, oh, uh, when we are distributing tickets, we don't look at anything. Uh, we don't look at identities. We don't look at anything. We just look at the winability of the candidate. So, you know, that was like, you know, whatever question I ask. It, so that was that, that, that was to me, it was very revealing very revealing so and it's it's also kind of telling that you know they're going to stick with their party lines whatever it is so that's why it was a very conscious decision that i did not include anyone anyone from the women's wings from any party whatsoever and i uh, while i was doing the research i really wanted my focus to be on on uh, feminist activists who do a lot of work but who are not heard of and I, I do want to uh, give credit to a book that I read, Playing With Fire. It's, uh, it's published by Richa Nagar and um, seven grassroots activists. They are not feminist activists, but activists in India. And they co-write. And I've been so inspired by this book. And uh, that's why I also focused on grassroots uh, feminist activists. They write about uh, the hierarchy in uh in you know the higher hierarchy in the system and how they do a lot of work but they never get like they are still relegated in the background and that book opened my eyes literally opened my eyes and i also wanted to focus very similarly on the activists who who do so much work in the rural and semi-rural areas without any like without even thinking or without even any expectation that Others are going to talk about them, write about them. They don't care about it, but they are working. And that was eye-opening for me when I was doing these interviews. 
So, so you use a word called the heterogeneous feminist movement in India. Could you explain that bit a little bit? Well, sure. So, what do you mean when you say the heterogeneous movement of India? Sure. So, um, there is this. Um, how do I put it? So, there is this uh, thing like feminist movement is 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 constructed as a very uh, you know if you are a feminist or if you are a believer in fem- the feminist movement then you are type a or you are type b you know you kind of categorize and you typify the movement so my idea is to identify that it's a heterogeneous movement it's a very diverse movement so the uh, feminist um, activists i spoke with who are mostly in the rural areas i don't even remember once that we uh, you know they referred anything about feminism but they are feminists they are very strong women who are working for other women in their communities without any expectation right uh, so to think about it that you know feminist movement or feminism is one type only then i i think it's a disservice so we have to recognize that it's a very diverse movement very heterogeneous what feminism looks in uh, the urban areas in india it doesn't look the same way in the rural or semi rural areas so 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 long story short there are feminists and then there are feminists <laughs> <laughs> there are <laughs> yeah so so it's like you know there are some people who just go about doing their job the fighting for what they believe is right without act uh, so if i was to understand that they don't attach a label to their job but they just go about doing their job and then there are some people who attach a label and do their job and then there are some people who just have the label and do nothing yeah there are those kinds as well um and i know that because one of my interviewees she's like uh, she's not on social media at all but she does fabulous work and she still does i mean uh and she has had so much personal sacrifices and uh she works mostly in the semi rural and rural areas in west bengal and she told me in one of the chats you know she has been working hard but someone else came and took some photographs and they posted on social media platforms claiming to be you know their work and uh, i told her why didn't you say well i don't have this i don't have the time to you know say anything on this because i am not on social media as much and if that person wants to take credit let it be i just want to work yeah but don't you think this is also a form of intellectual fraud this is a fraud at all levels <laughs> मतलब yeah, so it's it's ridiculous i mean if i was to it's it's like uh you know i i get reminded i know i try to keep things light also in the podcast i, I got reminded of that you know andaz apna apna ka scene where you know jagdeep shouts at salman khan come out come out mai udaye ye come out mai udaye ye kind of a thing you know kaam koi aur kar raha hai credit koi aur leke ja raha hai which is so typical of uh, you know many things that the way the cookie crumbles in india where there are real grassroots activists i, I know i mean i mean as someone who's been involved in some kind of socio political activism now for more than a decade i have seen many times i go and meet so i know this kid you know we used to have a larger project and one of the sub projects was uh, going into slums and identifying kids who are begging on the streets it's a very dangerous job taking them out of the job of begging because there's a mafia directly involved in it and right. i remember that child i would be like tu aaja main tere se baat karta hu bolta bhaiya aapke naam pe rakho matlab kyun bolta mujhe tapka denge so wahan pe tha ki mujhe maari dalenge jo main kaam kar raha hu to bhaiya aapko marenge nahi aapko sirf dhamkayenge 
this was the level so he did not want the attention for many things but then i also found many cases where these people deserved the attention and they would not get it so i i, I actually when i was reading the book i i immediately could relate to what you're talking about was because i have seen it in my own work when i do work in slums in mumbai or if i go to rural india and it's pathetic but another thing that stood out for me was you you talk about this this is just a theoretical query but i think you know i wanted to share it on the podcast sure. was you say the most prevalent form of reporting news of rape involves the whore and virgin dichotomy right where uh, you say the assaulted woman is a powerless object who has been violated now now what exactly is this dichotomy and what how is the framing done and what what is the potential downside of it sure so um so let me put it this way so there are various ways uh, frameworks that when i was studying the rape coverage that that when i was studying i found out so one of the most like you point out common is the whore virgin like first there could be the whore would be you know asking uh, what was she doing victim blame blaming and sorts those sorts of things and the virgin would be oh she's an angelic virgin and she has no agency of her own and she has been raped without taking into account the various structural or other issues like you know uh let's say for example how did it happen whether it's a, it's a like it's it's a stranger rape or uh, whether it is related to safety or whether uh, it's a socio politically uh, motivated thing so there are so many other factors if you put it so simplistically you are not really going in depth right and one of the things that i found um through interviews with uh, with with the journalist that after 2012 this whore virgin framework has reduced quite a bit because they would get called out on social media platforms uh so now what has happened um because they are being called out and they don't want to be called out they're avoiding the whore virgin um framework framing of rapes and sexual uh, violence but uh, so you know the, the quantity has increased a little bit but the quality the in- to investigate what are the other issues that why is it happening that is still not there uh so uh, that's 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 the primary focus is still missing from the structural issues like why is it happening how is it related what are the uh, several other factors that are leading to sexual violence that are leading leading to rapes and sexual harassment so those things are still missing so now i want to get into uh, what you call feminist theorizing in india in your in your check second chapter where you talk about rape news coverage in india uh, personally this was my favorite chapter in the book because this opened my eyes to look what happens is you're just consuming news without looking at it from a theoretical perspective to be very honest i mean uh, I, i i don't blame people for that because i mean i mean why would they theorize the news right they'll just right. look at the news and they will just experience the emotions as and when they are they're mm-hmm. they're watching the news or whether it's on digital medium or on on a or a or a medium like a newsroom or something of that sort or the print medium whatever it is right but so so you actually get into the details of it and again i want to i took out a few uh, quotes of, about that was sure. one thing that particularly uh, you know stood out for me is you you talk about something called the interdependent agenda building model now right. what is that what, what, can you explain uh, that a little bit 
Sure. So I've been, uh, since the time, let's say, since the time I started uh, studying and uh, analyzing, writing about sexual violence, rapes and sexual harassment and how social media and news media platforms, they impact not just the coverage, but agenda, uh, the public agenda. I uh, This is a concept that I've developed. So what is interdependent agenda building? So um, I kind of focus on uh, on the association, the interdependent association between social media uh, networks as well as mass media uh, platforms. And that only when they work together, they have the ability to build a public agenda, especially in digitally emerging spaces. And uh, I've given like several examples how when either one kind of works, like uh, if it's only mass media, then a certain section gets... um, is, is not involved. If it's only digital media, social media platforms, it uh, a certain section, it doesn't get involved. So in digitally emerging spaces, both need to work. And why, I will tell you. So um, there is no doubt that social media platforms, it empowers the victims and survivors to share their experiences. But we have to acknowledge that even sharing sexual violence or sexual harassment experiences on social media platforms, it's a privilege. And uh, why do I say it's a privilege? I don't say privilege because of access. It's not that, you know, people don't have self like access to digital media. Even when they have access, it's a, it's a privilege. And I'm going to give you one example, uh, quoting from um, one of the grassroots feminist activists, Shrutapa, she works. And uh, what she said, she said that um, the girls and young women in rural, semi-rural, where she works in in West Bengal, they know that, you know, there is, uh, they have access to social media platforms. They are looking, uh, they were looking at hashtag MeToo, hashtag MeToo India, but they cannot use their, like when they are sexually harassed on their way to schools or colleges, they can't, they can't share those on social media platforms. Why? Because, um, because the moment they will share, the way to protect them, their family is going to say, uh, okay, why don't you finish through correspondence? You know, uh, she said um, in Bengali, she said, So that's a way to protect, right? So it's a privilege to share experiences on social media platforms. So say in in this context we have to and then you know uh, on the other hand let me just finish my thought and then i'll say the um, you know how it's kind of related when hashtag me to india happened we saw that several women they shared their experiences sexual uh, harassment experiences that happened in newsrooms so of course they were not reported by the news right then so they needed those platforms so we need both the platforms to work together if we want to make any um, changes and or uh, kind of any public agenda related changes, policy changes. And that is what worked for, um, af- that is what happened after Jyoti Singh's brutal rape and murder. And that's why hashtag Nirbhaya was so popular. And it uh, like when I was studying like the number of Facebook comments like and I compared with the others, like there was no comparison at all. It was like so many times more it was received by the people because there was a push both uh, from the news media as well as from the social media platforms. So that's why I say that um, 
you know, it's kind of uh, you need to have both of them and both of them need to depend on, in, uh, you know, each other interdependent agenda building to make sure that there is an agenda, public agenda that is built so that if the public feels that it should be taken forward, then it's taken forward and a policy happens. All right. Now I want to talk about, so I'm going to read another quote, although this sure. quote is from chapter two, but I think it fits into chapter three, in my opinion. Okay. <laughs> So, so you write, I face similar hierarchical gatekeeping from some of the nonprofits. Right. I was refused any contact with the field workers and only the founder president wanted to meet. When the office of the founder president called to reschedule the appointment, I asked if I could go and observe the field workers and see how they work during the meeting. Not only was my request denied, but I was told categorically that the meeting was to be only with the founder president and no one else. Of course, the meeting was never scheduled. Rural feminist activists have come across gatekeeping and barriers while trying to use social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. Most prefer to use WhatsApp and still try to use Facebook to build an agenda and network with journalists, which now takes me to your third chapter of the book, where you uh, where you have appropriately titled it, where you call it the heart does not bleed for everyone, selective outrage and activism. Now, this actually blows my mind. serious subject gatekeeping or selectivity. How the hell? lot of lot of gatekeeping and hierarchy and uh, you know that kind of re reaffirmed Isilia I never went back to uh, the bigger organizations and I tried to focus on the grassroots uh, level feminist activists and uh, and, and yeah, you just read it. Uh, this is what I faced. So I was in India and I scheduled a couple of meetings and this was one of the meetings. And I, what I really wanted to do was see how the field workers, they work and also interview uh, the founder president of the organization. And uh, like I said, I, I, I was like um, a day or two before or, or that day now I forget it's it's been some years they called and they said that you know it's not going to happen and I all I wanted really to see how uh, the field workers they were working during the meetings what were they sharing whether they were using social media platforms but uh, that did not happen and because I think I, I broached the subject I never got a call back <laughs> uh, but I did want to share this just to show that uh, the feminist activists, even they, they, they are you like they uh, are victims of gatekeeping as well. So one of the feminist activists, she before uh, prior to this, like prior to her working by herself, she used to give her time to another organization, and um, you know just her time. And it's not that she told me that she didn't get paid. Paid, she would just get paid for transport and food, like a per diem kind of a thing. And um, and she does a lot of other things like she she teaches um, self-defense as well. But, you know, she was told that she whatever she did, she could not share it with others, like whatever work she did with the organization and for the grass. And I mean, act, uh, activism that she couldn't share with others. She could not even. Um, she she couldn't even share it on social media platforms, so she was very upset and she was like, "Okay, then I'll just you know work on my own," <laughs> and that's the kind of gatekeeping that I'm talking about. And this is very similar to 
the book that I was talking about that was written in 2005, Richa Nagar uh, and the other seven other women playing with our uh, playing with fire. This is the exact same thing that they talk about as well. Gatekeeping in activism, in grassroots level work. So to me, it was kind of a, re a reaffirmation that, I, you know, it's still working. It's still the same way. Why am I not surprised? Right. Yeah, but it's it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, what do they get beyond, you know, I call it the honored and humbled syndrome where, you know, how it is on Facebook, right? Uh, Everybody is like, Aaj main ek celebrity ko mila. Wo uske photo hai, selfie leta hai, Facebook pe dalta hai, and they always write honored and humbled. Uh, word bhi change hota. Har time, har insaan dunia mein honored and humbled hi ho raha hai. Aray, kam se kam eh, overwhelmed ho ja. Mainne ek baar mere dost ko bola, tu kyo honored and humbled ho raha? Overwhelmed ho. Bolta nahi, mein honored and humbled hi hoonga. So is this also some sort of a thing that everybody wants to control the other? So in a very weird way, Pallavi, what I'm observing, when I was reading your book, I was telling myself, these women are fighting for the freedom of women, but they really don't want to free these women. Um, I think it's about, uh, like I say, it's, I don't know if they don't want to free the women, but they want to maintain their hierarchy, like go through me. They want to maintain the gatekeeping. Uh, so, you know, uh, they, they like the hierarchy. I am the, I am at the top and you are there. Like, you know, you continue to be there and just do like what, whatever I am asking you, uh, to do. And they do want the spotlight to be on them. So that's why we still have the hierarchy and gatekeeping. So I don't know. I'm sure they are working for the good of women, but not sharing the spotlight and, you know, being a part of the hierarchy is, it is problematic. And um, talking about gatekeeping on social media platforms, I do want to give one example. And um, that's... Uh, why the women they also don't use a lot of social media um, on rural uh, in in rural spaces and semi rural spaces so one of the activists she had taken a video and some pictures of um, of a, like there was a street harassment that was happening and she she took those pictures and she said that okay don't you know ever dare to harass that girl and she put it uh, on facebook because uh, it was like, you know, th there's this guy where uh, he was trying to pull the dupatta of, of the girl and she took the photograph and she put it on Facebook on her profile. And she said, you know, today we uh, kind of, you know, if anyone is doing this to you, then let us know. We want to help you. And today we were able to stop something like this happened. And someone saw like who were who was involved and they reported the post as uh, nudity. It was taken down. Second time she did it it was taken down again and her profile was blocked and this is and she's like i don't know how to use facebook that well and you this know is, this is this happened. is uh, so this is actually a serious issue so you actually would not know because uh, I, let me tell you i don't understand facebook rules i don't understand twitter rules i mean i don't know beyond the point how, then then how do these people solve this dichotomy? Because Facebook and Twitter claim to be fighting for the, you know, the one at the bottom of the ladder or the bottom of the rung, but they are they in a weird way because they they formulate these rules. You know, this is how our bureaucrats work in India. They so they could write the law in one page, but they write a pothi. And then they write the pothi so that they their anointed people can be the gatekeepers of 
saab kaam karwa ke lena so in a way this is like so, you know social media giants are now having their own gatekeepers where ha bhai main tujhe batata hu tu aa tu aise kaam kar it, 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 then how does this help activism then so so that's why you know the rural activists like i say like um, it's it's and semi rural activists it's for them it's very difficult to be on these social media platforms but i don't know do you can would you consider whatsapp to be a social media platform they love working on whatsapp because they can so, i can so vouch for that i can vouch for that again whatever so, little work i have done whatsapp is creating magic in india because what happens is they just send that video immediately right. and it goes to that person directly i mean i can give you my own experience from running a factory where my workers in fact it is kind of my bane as like sometimes i have to tell them are pura time whatsapp mein baitha rehta hai kuch aur bhi kar le it's like they're always everybody is constantly on whatsapp whatsapp is our national pastime but whatsapp is also helping them so one yeah. of the one of the participants she told me are didi whatsapp uh, whatsapp se hum kar lete hain so you know this that's why they are not on twitter facebook sometimes you know at the other part, uh, uh, feminist activist i was talking speaking with she said oh uh, facebook i have a i have a profile i don't check much you know and and i keep in touch with them through whatsapp as well so they are just a call away that's how i did uh, the interviews too so and and it also helps them in other ways like you know if uh, if nothing is working and they want to con- uh, contact a journalist and mostly um it's uh, not the english newsrooms the english media they are uh, connected with the local media journalist so they use whatsapp like you know this has happened would you be interested and i will come back to the earlier point i made so that's why you need an interdependent agenda building you can't leave behind anyone so if you don't have both then there are these blind spots and gaps you know i want to pick on so you just in a passing reference you spoke about the media again i want right. to read a quote from your book which right. basically pissed me off till the extent that i wanted to do something like literally so it was i i was really disturbed when i read this part so you've written amit obviously the name is a pseudonym a senior journalist working for an english newspaper said mm-hmm. a molestation or alleged rape that occurred in a slum by shanty dwellers will usually not get get much coverage or any coverage at all editors frequently brush aside them brush them aside as being not newsworthy but such an allegation in a high profile or social elite class family will attract huge attention it is mainly on the profile of the victim and the nature of the crime what kind of monsters do this it's just very sad very very sad and disappointing and uh, like like you said i've used a lot of pseudonyms because uh, during the it. interviews they were like you know not not everyone is comfortable sharing their uh, names so i've used a lot of pseudonyms and i've i have identified who are the ones that have used pseudo names and amit is not the only one who said like amit said this um, in the context of urban slums and shanties but um, there are other journalists who said the same things about rural and semi rapes and sexual violence happening in rural and semi rural areas so one journalist also said a similar thing that you know uh, if a sexual violence happened in a rural or semi rural areas it it would be you know pushed back in some pages like you know in the f- page 4 or page 5 and not on page 
And uh, that's partly because a lot depends on who your readers are. So it's very commodified, right? The, the industries, so who your readers are. So they think, okay, if this has happened in a rural or semi-rural areas or in a slum or a shanty, would, would our readers be interested in reading about it? It is very unfortunate, very disappointing, but um, it, is, it is how it, it works. It, it used to work at least. And uh, if it's a high profile, like, you know, if it's happening in the heart of the city, then there are a lot of questions about the safety of women uh, safety of uh, the readers who are reading, so they will connect more, and they will they will read the story more. They would be more interested. So that's why you know either it is not picked up or it is picked up later, depending on the news uh, busyness of the news cycle or the news, or it is relegated to a page which is like you know further down or or somewhere inside. But um, one of the other journalists also say that uh, the power of being Facebookish, that means uh, social media has kind of helped a little bit in this instance, like they call out if someone knows that, why are you not writing about this? Or there are call outs. So now um, things are moving maybe towards it that they include. They, they, there is a focus that, you know, we should not be neglecting them. but. Um, at the same time, uh, I would say that where it is treated equitably, that's still a day to come. Like we still need to make a lot of progress there. Another dichotomy that you talk about is a dichotomy on being a journalist or an activist, right? Now, mm -hmm. I'll be very open. Uh, one of the biggest reasons I've stopped watching news in India, especially political news in India. I'm, I'm just being very honest. I've not seen a single mainstream media news outlet now for six plus years. I, I find them abhorrent. I find them to be a bane on you know humanity, where they are shouting and screaming and eating each other, and they are agenda driven, because they are not journalists; they are activists. Now, here's the weird scenario, but in something as sensitive as sexual assault, while you would want a person to be a journalist, but you would also want a person to be an activist. You would. I I'm being very honest here. Like, you can't go about. Um, talking about issues like this on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in a newspaper or in a you know a, a mainstream media channel without having an an activist like zeal in you because it's 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 a very depressing scenario when you cover something like this because you're constantly surrounded by horrendous news horrific news you know you're always in stress you're always uh, under pressure as a human being. So how does one do that? Because I obviously don't want that in political news reporting. I don't want activism in science reporting. But if somebody is kind of activisty in this area, which is like sexual assault, I really won't mind beyond. A, uh, I mean, I don't want it to be absolute activism. I do want some base level journalism existing there too, where I just want to know the facts of the case first. But how does one draw that line then? It's it's a it's a very good question, Kushal. Thank you for asking that, and um, I think it's also very important. So, from what I found from the interviews, and I will say that again, so most of the male journalists they identified themselves only as journalists. Like even um, and I'm, I I kind of uh, specifically asked them only about sexual harassment and sexual violence and rape. Uh, while covering them, issues such issues, and they saw themselves only as uh, 
as journalists. As far as the activists, some of the activists, they were former journalists. And because of their experiences of sexual harassment in the newsrooms, they now have become activists. But no one um, who are like currently in newsrooms, they don't uh, identify themselves as activists, but they do identify that um, it being a woman or having faced sexual harassment in various ways, you know, street harassment or so, they, it kind of makes them more sensitive towards asking some questions. And let me give you an example. I also do this in my class when I'm teaching. And uh, I feel that I can ask these questions because I do the same thing. So when I'm asking um, my class, how many of you, um, if it's like after sundown, you keep your phone handy and you keep looking back if it's an empty space. Most of my female students will raise their hands, not my male students. I can ask that question because I do the same thing, right? So, um, you know, sensitizing, it's not about activism, but it's about lived experience. So uh, I can ask that question, put it into perspective because I do it, right? Uh, how many of you, Previously, you know, I, I used to, I, I would, I used to carry pepper spray. Um, then uh, how many of you carry like pepper spray when it's like, uh, you know, you are traveling from, from somewhere or how many of you have speed dial for safety net? Most of my female students uh, who identify themselves as female, they will raise their hand. Again, I am able to ask these questions because I have a lived experience. So the same thing happens in newsrooms. Uh, so not necessarily if you if you it's it's an activist role, but it's a lived experience role. You have lived through that, so you know the kind of question that you you would be able to ask, especially related to sexual harassment and and rape and sexual violence. Yeah, but uh, where uh, again? Uh, I have to ask this question because sure. it's my duty. No, of course, but there has to be a line somewhere, right? Where too much of activism, even when it comes to sexual assault, becomes a problem. So how does one go about deciding that line? I think it's it's an individual decision. You have to kind of decide yourself what is it that, uh, where do you want to draw the line? So if you ask me very personally, uh, people sharing, like if, if I'm a if I'm a journalist or if I have a public profile and if I share um, some of my views like very openly on social media sites or platforms, it will question my objectivity, right? So I think the way to go towards this is follow objectivity in how you are reporting. So following using the tools and following, uh, following it. And uh, then, you know, all of us, we have our uh, own beliefs, right? And then making sure that keeping those two separate, that's the, that's the best way to go about it. Uh, but, but also, I would say lived experiences cannot be, uh, you know, taken out. Lived experiences are very important, as, as far, especially as far as sexual harassment and sexual assault issues are concerned. All right. So now let's get into this part where you talk about the transnational hashtag movements, where you basically are talking about, you know, global hashtag movements like Black Lives Matter or uh, 
it's for just just for example that right now what now I, i'll give you my point of view as i was reading this chapter i kind of had mixed feelings about this because mm-hmm. i kind of relate to what you're saying but at the same time you know what do you do about this i mean as the famous adage that goes in hindi is jiski laathi uski bhains right that's just the way <laughs> life has been so uh how does one like even with hashtag me too I think hashtag Me Too in the United States of America would have a completely different experience and connotation than from a hashtag Me Too, say in India. In fact, I would go a step further and say, why should India even have a hashtag Me Too? Why can't we have our own thing, our own little thing? And why do we need? It's always, you know, I somehow find it very nauseating. Where until and unless any Baba ake America se ya Anglosphere se apna ashirwad nii deta hai, hamari movement ko tab tak humko aisa lagta nii hai ki ham aage hain, we have arrived. As in, so how do we deal with this dichotomy? Sure. So I'll uh, let me start with. Um... one thing uh, so the one of the movements losha um in academia like uh, sexual harassment uh, list of uh, sexual harassment in academia that in in india that was started by an indian student in the us so that was a movement that originated here and this is also a perfect example i would like to give of gatekeeping but she faced a lot of gatekeeping and hierarchy from india so that is like really uh, you know she all she wanted to do was do you remember raya sarkar i yeah. write about her as well yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so losha was originally started in the indian sphere not in the us sphere it was picked up here later so uh, but she faced a lot of gatekeeping uh, so, so gatekeeping in the sense from indian feminist activists yes. uh, yes. senior famous elite feminist activist yeah there was an open letter against her and uh, oh. her yeah uh, and her, and her list like um, it's no longer available on google but she was the one who started but most people still when they have to refer they will refer to the losha that started here in the us right but she initiated it first um talking about why can't we have our own movement i think uh, having an umbrella movement gives visibility mm-hmm. that is my personal take uh, it gives visibility but i will say um, you know it it kind of empowers like when you see the google map have you seen the google trends map of hashtag me too it kind of blips uh, like you know so many people there yeah. so that kind of gives visibility but again what i said earlier that transnational movements they kind of travel but whether they are successful and sustainable it depends on the local context a lot and it doesn't reach further in you know in the interior and i want to uh, quote something i've used this in my book as well um you uh, so the 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 young woman who was raped in unnao and uh, who lost her family as well and she was uh, there was an attempt on her life to so she was interviewed uh, in 2018 october of 2018 by a journalist who asked her about #metoo india and uh, she, you know what she said she said i don't have a phone i don't watch tv i have no idea what is going on i tried to seek justice but i lost my father this is what she said so she has no idea what is going on and then later when there was an attempt on her life her mother she literally pleaded she said that um, you know uh, if you she told journalists in hindi like you know if you don't uh, you are the way like you know if you don't talk about us 
you deserted us six months ago. If you don't talk about us, then who will talk about us? So this, um, so in rural and semi-rural areas, victims and their families, survivors, victims and their families, they still uh, think that the news media is a platform of justice for them because it helps them to amplify. Because they, you know, because they don't have a lot of times, they don't have access to those platforms. And uh, and also they don't know how to effectively use those platforms. So that's why I also say the heart doesn't bleed for everyone. You will come across posts like, you know, but they don't have as many retweets or as many shares. So no one really knows what is happening about them. So I so, think it's important for, sorry, you were saying something. No, no, so I just okay. had a follow-up question, but please sure. complete your point, then I can ask that question. Yeah, so um, I do think it's it's important to have the umbrella movements just to amplify, but also to recognize that it doesn't reach everyone. So it's, I mean, make use, people who can make use of the movements of the hashtags very well, uh, use it, it will help them you know, to, uh, to amplify their cases. There were so many that happened in newsrooms in 2015, 2008, 2007, that it only came to light after the hashtag MeTooIndia movement happened because they felt empowered to share then. But also realize that it's a kind of privilege to be able to share those. So yeah, go ahead. I don't want to take more time. So, so, no, no, so, so, so what I was trying to ask you is that in a way it's a double-edged sword. So while there might be a bad side to it for like for every single tool, like in social media, you know, right. uh, you get terrible trolls who hate on me daily, but you get amazing people too, right? Right. So right. I guess with, with uh, social media activism is just uh, like any other uh, zone where, you know, you're going to find uh, some people hijacking what you really started uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, once that tool, albeit being hijacked, still some people can kind of piggyback on it, right? Mm -hmm. And after piggybacking on it, at least those stories will come out. So I guess there's just, you got to take the good and the bad simultaneously then? Yeah, exactly. And you got to recognize that. You got to recognize that social media is not one size fits all. And um, I think more and more we are moving away from that discourse that, you know, social media is a great place. It, it It's... Uh, for everyone or it, it helps the marginalized. Yes, it helps the marginalized, but not always. So this not always, this kind of gets lost in translation sometimes. So we have to recognize that it, yes, it works for many, but it does not work for all. Yeah, I get it. So uh, now, uh, Pallavi, how how does one go about what what's the the way forward then like let's say if i was to say somebody uh you know what does one learn what are the lessons that we can learn from uh these observations about like uh, uh, i would recommend everybody to go and buy your book and read chapter four kind part where pallavi has done an analysis of three particular facebook pages where she gets into a very detailed analysis of how these you know facebook pages are interwoven with other things and how the digital network flows it's very interesting i found it very interesting but then Thank what you. is the way forward well uh, like uh, you have these international hashtag movements, you have hashtag me too, you have many other movements, but, but so I, I'll give you again, my experience as someone who has done these things on the ground. Right. I think it's a training issue. Sometimes people just don't know. So 
can there be like organized workshops or training tools where you can actually go to girls in rural india and slums and in lower income groups uh, albeit anywhere in india where we can actually create workshops where we can train these girls about how to use whatsapp effectively how to use facebook effectively what is an hashtag what is a trend or are there any kind of efforts being done in those areas and did you uh, come across them no so first thank you so much for the shout out kusha <laughs> and um so i am not aware of the workshops but also at the same time i want to say that even if they are aware a lot of times it's um it's not the access related issues it's because they can't do it uh, there are other issues there are uh, like you know they are in closer proximity to their abusers they can't do it or you know if they do it they can't use public spaces as often i think the bigger going forward uh the bigger take would be including all these fabulous you know activists who are working on the grassroots level and recognizing them somehow like you know making them a part of the larger um of the larger movement highlighting on their achievements right so i wrote this book i don't know how many of them are going to how many people are going to have access and how many are going to read the book but it's just a book but if the news media and if others who have more access on social media platforms such as you know the influencers um i try to keep my social media at the minimum uh but uh, you know if they focus on these fabulous people who are working day in day out and a lot of times i have to say this on your show kushal so that it reaches more people that many of these women they sometimes travel you know if the police is not taking the fir for if 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 a woman you know when a woman has been raped or sexually violated and the police is not taking the fir there are these women they will travel from nearby villages so that they can just sit peacefully and picket until the police takes the complaint these women if they travel they will not have the money to have lunch there's no one sponsoring them so they are giving up so these stories of personal sacrifices someone has to tell these stories i only have i can only say this to one book it is only going to reach so many people so there has to be a way where and they are not the only ones who are you know there are there are so many who do this so there has to be a way that we acknowledge them i mean today is international women's day everyone is wishing each other but is there a way that we can acknowledge these women um social media doesn't talk about them news media sometimes does so who who someone needs to talk about them right so i think going forward we need to put focus on these these women at the grassroots level who are working the fabulous work that they are doing and a ways to support them and that work so it comes from uh, the villages right so it comes from those rural areas so right now um as i like to say we are all in our own bubbles not just uh, and echo chambers not just on social media platforms but also in terms of location the focus is primarily uh, on on urban and urban areas so and that's why we are missing so many so i think that has to be the way forward yeah workshops would be wonderful uh, but uh, at the same time this focus on on these grassroots activists that needs to be done yeah i couldn't agree more and you know what uh, all i can do is that you know, if you 
come across these activists and if i can you know call them on my podcast or just talk about them on my twitter or on my social media platforms i will be happily doing that i always believe in uh you know sh- shining a light on those people that nobody wants to talk about i i i did not start this podcast for any other reason my whole reason was that i want to do things nobody does nobody wants to have long conversations in india so i said you know what what the hell i'll have long conversations in india everybody wants to have 10 minute conversations main ek ghanta baat karunga so uh, if if anybody wants to come you know my platform is always open i will you know i want to talk about their work how do they go about it and and, and believe me i can understand all of this only because i myself have busted my ass on the ground working right. in these areas in fact i'll narrate an incident it's i think it was 3 years ago so we used to go into slums and have these food distribution services where we would just food distribution was just a point of entry where they you gain their trust and then you start and going and you know understanding their issues and start working mm-hmm. now while i was working i i clearly remember having one of those meetings and at that time i had specifically asked i want women in the slums to come mm-hmm. and nobody was willing to come and then i i i literally in a very weird way kind of threatened the men ki main aunga nahi agar aurte nahi aayengi to and they got the women and then i was like aap logon ko kya chahiye everybody was silent aadmi bahut bol rahe the aurte nahi bol rahi thi fir ek aurat ne mere ko aise haath pakda idhar aao mala ha bolo she took me to a spot and she took took me on a spot where there were empty beer bottles and i was like हाँ तो इसका कुछ कर सकते हो एंड एंड आई शट आई हैड नो आंसर सो इन हर ओन वियर्ड वे शी सेड ये जाता है दबा के दारू पीता है रात को आता है और मुझे मारता है इसका क्या कर सकते हो एंड ऑनेस्टली मेरे पास कोई आंसर नहीं था एट दैट टाइम बिकॉज आई टोल्ड हर कि पुलिस बोलता पुलिस में जाके क्या करूंगी रहना भी इसके साथ है इन चीजों का कोई आंसर नहीं था मेरे पास एंड यू नो व्हाई आई डिड नॉट हैव एन आंसर बिकॉज आई डिड नॉट हैव एनी काइंड ऑफ अ ट्रेनिंग इवन एज एन एक्टिविस्ट टू गो एंड डील विद दिस इश्यूज लेटर ऑन आई अंडरस्टूड दैट यू नो कॉप्स आर आल्सो स्मार्ट दे डोंट जेल द हस्बैंड दे हैव देयर ओन वेज ऑफ डीलिंग विद द हस्बैंड्स हु आर ड्रंक इन इंडिया वो आते हैं दो चार चमाट लगा देते हैं उसको बोलते हैं चल वापस जा आगे नहीं करना काइंड ऑफ अ थिंग सो ऐसा नहीं है कि पुलिस कुछ नहीं करती है पुलिस ऑल्सो काइंड ऑफ these things but it it hit me at that time i i i clearly remember that incident of that lady taking me to a corner and showing me those beer cans and desi daru ke you know bottles and so like ye hamare issues hain and honestly this is where i struggle as a human being on a daily basis now obviously i'm not going to sit in a corner and live, live my life completely look i don't expect anybody to do that but what i can expect from anybody who watches this podcast and any you know talk about these people once in a month at right. least ek i found right. this interesting person in this corner of india maybe somebody might help them you know give them some donation or something i don't know i, I mean is there any other way we can do it that's uh, i think yeah like you said talk about them at least you know not just on uh, women's day but talk about them make sure that you um, you know and not just on social media sites but also on the news talk about talk about them on the news as well because uh not not everyone is still on social media sites so maybe the through the news they will know what for what fabulous work they are doing so amplifying through all platforms that is really important and i'm so glad you shared kushal your experience 
of uh, how how this experience of going there in the slum it had a kind of a jarring impact on yourself because you didn't know how to react and when i was chatting with um, when i was doing the interviews a lot of times i had this kind um, of a reaction myself when they were saying oh you know what um, uh, my 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 profile was was blocked on facebook and i'm like aisa bhi hota hai because she said shared something that is like you know completely it has nothing to do with nudity so so to me as well i mean i learned so much from this experience so i can't just say that i know i am sharing all of this through the book but the book has been a learning experience for myself like you know how how not uh, anti sexual violence activism on social media platforms and other than social media platforms impacts of uh, the rural and semi rural area activists as well so for me it has been a great learning experience and i will say it's been a humbling experience as well it has been so, a humbling experience so pallavi before we wrap things up i actually sure. wanted to ask you one last question so any sure. new projects coming up so what are you looking to do now post this book uh so post this work as an academic we are always um, we are always working on scholarships and articles like academic articles so post this work my next project and i am actively still working on it is um, is as how sexual harassment and sexual violence uh, whether it's it has been a part of any political campaign during the elections and how is it received why or why not so these are the questions i am currently investigating Well, um, I, I I can assure you, once you do, uh, once you're done with that paper, just send it across to me. I'll definitely cover it on the podcast. I would love to cover these kinds of subjects. Sure, thank you so much. And again, for this, I want to understand how sexual violence, um, you know, whether it's it's a part of uh, of of any political campaign, larger issue, or or is it just used to scandalize, or it is used as an issue where there needs to be more policies that need to be made. and how the electorate they are also kind of looking at it so yeah so that's my next work all right so guys uh, time to wrap up the podcast i have left the link uh, to purchase uh, pallavi's book in the description of the podcast so it doesn't matter uh, if you're watching a uh, you know watching this on youtube or if you're going to listen to this on soundcloud or spotify or apple itunes or whatever wherever you're going to listen to just go on the description of the podcast click on the link and buy pallavi's book it is an amazing book uh, to all you lazy buggers out there who always tell me kushal bhai 400 page ki book recommend karte ho hamesha padhne ko bhai ye to 200 page ki bhi nahi hai तो ये पढ़ लो आलसियों कम से कम सो प्लीज गो एंड बाय द बुक एंड पल्लवी वंस अगेन थैंक्स अ लॉट फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट इट वाज एन एब्सोल्यूट प्लेजर टू टॉक टू यू थैंक यू सो मच कुशल फॉर द शाउट आउट एंड द ऑपर्चुनिटी टू शेयर यू नो सो मच अबाउट नॉट जस्ट माय एक्सपीरियंस बट ऑल ऑफ दोस अनसंग हीरोज एज़ वेल एंड शाइनिंग द स्पॉटलाइट ऑन देम एज़ वेल थैंक यू सो मच कुशल All right guys time to wrap things up if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the podcast like the video share the video leave a comment over there once again buy pallavi's book if you like what i'm doing on the podcast please become a member of the youtube channel or subscribe or patreon if you want to send direct donations you can send it directly to kushal mehra at icici through upi and you can buy the charvak podcast merch today being 8th of march i have just launched a special gift for our liberal friends on holi so you can go and buy that t-shirt or two i'll see you next time with another interesting conversation until then namaste take care goodbye